Hello and welcome to episode 94 of Tea or Books. I'm Simon. I'm Rachel. And this is the podcast where we debate the difficult decisions of books and reading. Mm-hmm. In the first half, we're doing a topic suggested by Gillian. Thank you, Gillian. Um, Rachel has approved the topic, but has yet to hear how Gillian phrased it. Oh. Which is, do we care where authors lived? <laughs> so <laughs> Gillian oh, okay. took up my mantle for more do we care titles. So that's the first half. In the second half, we will be comparing Frost in May by Antonia White with Dusty Answer by Rosamund Lehman. Um, in a moment, I'm going to ask you how, how, how you are and what you're reading, Rachel, but I just want to let you know that we have had some backlash from the last episode. Have or rather, we? you have. <laughs> in that more than one person has said, Simon, that was a brilliant choice of topic. Rachel should have been much more enthusiastic about it. I just had to pass yeah. it on. You listeners don't know what nonsense I have to put up with. And also bullying on a regular basis. Um, so I do often have, uh, let's say, um, sceptical attitudes <laughs> about some of the topics. But you don't know the other stuff that gets suggested that I decline to do. So um, yeah, You make the best of a bad situation. I do make the best of a bad situation. Though, to be fair, you know... I'm not very good at coming up with topics, so I, I should really give you some credit because at least you come up with ideas. They might not be very good ones, but they are ideas. <laughs> um, when you say like that, speak uh, to me like that, Rachel, I can read how you were born to be a teacher. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, how are you doing? What are you reading? Oh, I'm good, thank you. Um, I'm just about to finish reading The Last of Summer by Kate O'Brien, so I'm continuing to work my way through through the bookshelf so I've, okay. I've made it to o. um and i've enjoyed it as i've never read any kate o'brien before i know that she uh, was reprinted by farrago so mm. i've heard of her for, for quite some time i knew she was an irish writer um but i you know i wasn't quite sure what to expect but i mean i've enjoyed it it's very well written it's very atmospheric it's set in ireland um literally as uh, world war ii is about to break out so it's the september the august and september of 1939 like when the last uh, september by Elizabeth Bowen. Yes, and I did think yes. of the similarities between the two, though Elizabeth Bowen is a better writer, but in my opinion. Um, but this, you know, it's a sort of, you know, when you start reading it and you think, I can see exactly how this is going to end, and I'm now five pages from the end, and, you know, I'm not normally very good at, at sort of guessing things, but, I mean, everything I guessed has happened, so um, that's never a good sign, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, you know, it's another one of those plots where, it's basically the story of a family who live in a large house in Ireland and a girl turns up at the beginning of the novel. She, she's been brought up in France by a actress mother and she, her father was the, the son of this Irish family and he mm. went abroad and married her and she turns up at the house and all of her cousins obviously instantly fall in love with her. <laughs> uh, within 10 days the, the oldest son who's never shown any interest in women in his life has proposed to her <laughs> and they're both madly in love with each other I'm like you've known each other for 10 days what is this and also your first cousin this isn't okay um, and Yikes. it's just yeah I and the whole thing is I was just like oh I just I hate I hate those plots that hinge around people falling in love with each other instantly because they're mm. so beginning. it's like there is more to a marriage than how much you have the hots for each other um and also it's 
there is one the mother is a very interesting character but aside from that it's all just a bit you know predictable but i can see it was it was published during the war and i could think it was probably a nice distraction for people reading their book club book in 1944 fair enough yeah, but I mean, I wouldn't say for me. I mean, I, I'm trashing this book, which I've uh, previous to us recording this, I, I have already <laughs> said to Simon. It's a very nice edition. Um, I do think, I mean, it's enjoyable. It's well written. I have enjoyed it. I've whipped through it in a couple of days. But it's, um, I was just, I was expecting something more. You know, when something's reprinted by Virago, and I was thinking, oh, you know, this, there's probably got some real depth to this. Um, and I mean, there just isn't really. Interesting. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so, well, as we will discover when we talk about Frost in May, it was their first ever modern classic, so maybe we'll be able to talk a bit about oh, yes, how indeed. and why they choose the books. Yeah. Um, so what are you reading, Simon? I'm reading Brat Farrar by Josephine Tay, or Brat, Brat oh. Farrar, I don't know, terrible title, yes. um, which is for my book group, but it was given to me by my friends Paul and Kirsty a while ago. Uh, my friend Kirsty is a huge Josephine Tay fan and um, I've only read the, the franchise affair before, which I enjoyed. And she gave me a copy of that one about Richard the third, which I, uh, which she took back when I said I wouldn't read it because I hate Richard the third. Um, oh, is right, that Daughter of Time? That's it. I've got that on my shelf and oh, haven't read it. Yeah, I've, I think it was just because everyone went on about Richard the Third so much when they found him in a car park, and I was like, I just don't care, just put him back, move on. <laughs> um, well, there was such a fuss about that one. Oh, I know, people were processing through the street, processing, processing through the street, uh, wondering where we could bury him next. Like, well, it wasn't causing any, any more problems where he was. Um, no, any- I, do, I do love the individ- the woman behind it. I just I love that level of passion <laughs> yeah. for something that ultimately has no meaning. It's <laughs> yeah, a rather misplaced passion in my yeah. mind. So yes, the premise of it is um, this guy called Brett Farrer uh, is the doppelganger of uh, a boy who. Well, he's he's twenty. I think he's about twenty one, and the, a boy who drowned probably when he was thirteen. Um, uh. A twin. Of a guy called Simon, in fact, um, yeah. and so a family friend meets him, says, "You look exactly like this guy would look if he was still alive. Why don't you go back and pretend to be him so he can get some inheritance?" Blimey. So it's a whole doppelganger thing. Um, so I'm enjoying it. It's um, I read The Scapegoat by Daphne du Maurier last year, which has a similar premise, and I think is. Oh, I just read that. Ah, yeah. I think it's brilliant. I really liked it. Yeah, so did I. Once I um, once I suspended my disbelief of the fact that. A French, an English person could speak French without an accent. Um, I was fine. <laughs> but the, the idea of doppelgangers was not your issue. No, the doppelganger I was fine with. <laughs> um, but um, the, the fact that somebody who's not like a fo- like having a foreign identity and being able to speak exactly like someone that I was a bit like really surely the voice like there would be something in the voice you'd know someone's voice. Well, yes, yeah. Lots of I mean, that one. He'd be, only been away for a couple of weeks or something, hadn't he? So, um, forever. Slightly, slightly yes, believable. But uh, oh, maybe we, you, we should do these two books together at some point because I think they are interesting counterpoints. Um, yeah, the, the, the interesting thing with Brett Farrar is that because we know from the outset that he is making it up, there's not that sort of tension uh, of trying to find out whether or not he is, and we also. Um, we don't really see him discovering everyone for the first time in the way that in the scapegoat he's sort of plonked there and doesn't know anything because he's been he's been coached and everything by this by this um, family friend. So there's not that much tension at the moment, but I think there's stuff bubbling under the surface. Mm. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, so that's quite quite enjoyable. And I um, I have just started No Place Like Home by Beverly Nichols because I thought, why not? Time for another Beverly Nichols. Very cheering. Yes, he's, he's often he's at his travel log. He's currently in Vienna. He doesn't think much of it. Yeah. <laughs> well, at least he can go to Vienna. <laughs> yes, I mean, it was 1936, so... Um, <laughs> We weren't that many pleasant times on the horizon for <laughs> European travel, but uh, no, true. Yes, but at the time he was having a lovely, lovely moment in Vienna. Oh, well, yeah. as it turns out, he wasn't. But anyway, good fun. Great. So the first topic, uh, first half. Thank you very much for your lovely email, Gillian. Enjoyed reading that. Um, forwarded it to you, Rachel. Have you? Have you also enjoyed it? Enjoyed it? it? Yes, I did. Can't talk to him. It was lovely. Thank all the way from Australia. That's uh, very kind. And would like to know, do we care where authors live? Particularly, uh, meaning, I, I think, uh, do we want to visit authors' houses, etc. Uh, message Rachel, who's about this, and you said you had opinions. I do have opinions, um, and I'm very happy to give them in this <laughs> topic. Um, I love an author's house, house visit. Um, I get very emotional often, mm-hmm. um, especially when they've got the stuff there that they actually mm-hmm. use so um the writing desk the clothes the bed whatever that really helps you to imagine what it would have been like when they were there so um my favorite one is well actually i've got two favorites that i probably couldn't decide between um jane austen's house down in um hampshire mm-hmm. which is wonderful yes. and the the first time I went there, I've been there a few times now. I always try and take friends there who, you know, are coming to England from other places. And I've, I remember walking into the front room where her desk is by the window. And I was just overcome with emotion. I don't mm. know what came over me. Um, and I just thought, oh, my goodness, I can't believe I'm actually looking at where she wrote her books. Like, this is insane. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, and there was a sign saying, don't touch the desk. And listeners, I did touch the desk. <gasps> I couldn't help myself. I had to do it. <laughs> Can and I guess where your other favourite place is? Yes. Is it Howarth? It is. Yes. <laughs> so well. And that was also a wonderful experience because even though it is slightly altered from when the Brontes were there, there were some additions made by the um, the person who took over after mm-hmm. their father left. Again, you really do get that sense of understanding how they lived. And I think from understanding... You know, Jane Austen's house, I remember when I went there for the first time and I saw where it was positioned on the streets, on the corner, where, um, it, so the the lounge has got two windows and you can see exactly who's coming towards you and who's going past. And the road that runs in front of the cottage, I mean, now it's a very quiet road, but at the time it was the main coach road between London and um, the south of England. So all of the, the, the coaches... T- like with people traveling would mm. go past people would get off people would get on and also in that village what you've got is the huge house the huge manor house owned by her brother uh chawton house which is now a center of study for um literature women's literature and you've got the church you've got the vicarage you've got lots of big houses but then you've also got lots of tiny little houses and when i went there i was like this is Highbury," mm-hmm. and i saw that understanding that she had of the upper classes but also the lower classes because she was mixing with with people of all different backgrounds and you really see that from having visited her house and you also understand as well how difficult it must have been for her to write in a house where it's actually it's 
mean, it looks quite big from the outside, but when you're inside, it's, it's, it's small. I mean, it's a cottage. Mm. And, you know, her having to scribble away in a corner while people were coming and going all the time. I mean, because the lounge also is, is basically a corridor because you have to go through the lounge to get to the other part of the house. So, I just it just made me think like how amazing that she was able to write this stuff but also I understand how she was able to write this stuff because of what she could see out of her window like she saw all of life because people think oh Jane Austen didn't go anywhere she didn't do anything but she didn't need to she had it all right there and it's um you know I feel the same way about the Bronte's house and I was really shocked actually when I first went because I believed in all this stuff about you know them living in the middle of nowhere yeah, yeah, on yeah. this sort of barren moor and and the house is literally at the top of the main street of Haworth which was a very big bustling town I mean there's several pubs there's all these shops um the moors are all behind um but you also see how close that the graveyard is right in front of the house and you see that death was all around them and you really get that sense of how they came up with their plots but also an understanding that they weren't disconnected from the world. You know, Haworth is very close to all of the large northern cities. They were very well connected and, you know, they weren't cut off from education or society or anything like that. So at the same, while it, it kind of confirms your understanding of how they done, they, they do things, it also enables you to dispel some of the myths that have certainly grown up around those more famous writers. So, so those are my favorite places. And I would say, it it did matter to me where they'd lived because it helped me to understand them more as writers and and why they chose to write about the things they wrote about and um you know how they came to get the inspiration that they did yeah i think that's a really good point um particularly about the i definitely agree about the brontes and you realizing they're not living in a shack in the middle of nowhere yeah. um possibly a myth started by elizabeth gaskell's elizabeth biography of charlotte bronte like so many other myths that have been entrenched since then yeah. um justice for anne uh but <laughs> <laughs> yeah i've been to those two as well and i like you uh felt really moved by being in jane austen's house um i didn't go until i was how old was i know 25 or something um and it really did no, I think I've been before, but that maybe that was the first time I'd gone since I'd read her novels, and I found it really quite overwhelming to think that I don't know if it is the exact table, but at the same this exact position that she'd have sat and written these these books in, um, and somehow it just—I mean, obviously I know she existed, I know she had she sat somewhere, but seeing the immediacy of it really is quite striking. Mm. Um, and I felt similarly when I went to Stephen Leacock's house, uh, author. I probably mentioned here many times um, a Canadian humorist whom I really love, and he uh, lived in Aurelia, which is in in Ontario. Um, uh, and there's not much else in Aurelia. There is certainly not enough to justify seven hours there, which is how long me and my brother had to spend there. <laughs> uh, my mm. brother and I had to spend there because of the buses from Toronto not being particularly frequent. Oh yeah, uh, <laughs> uh, but it's just a lovely wood panelled place out by a lake. Uh, very beautiful part of a not particularly beautiful town uh quite strangely very little is it like in, when we get to all these houses that are open to the public in the uk there's often information boards everywhere and you know people st- sat on chairs in the corner ready to give you information this one there was nobody there at all just a sort of place to put money um and it was all wood panelled in pine sort of floor to walls and ceiling <laughs> and mm. very few objects around so it, if you hadn't known it was Stephen Leacock's house, there was nothing inside really to tell you that. But, oh, but right. um, so 
in that sense, it wasn't particularly well done, but I still found it extremely moving. I think also because I assumed I would never go there in a way that I, I always knew I'd probably go to Jane Austen's house because it's not particularly hard to get to for a Brit. And indeed, I almost lived in the next village over at one point. My, my yeah. dad got down to the final two to be uh, the vicar of of the area, including the vicar of Chawton yeah. Church. Wouldn't that have been Gosh, wonderful? that would have been wonderful. Yes. I would have been. It's, it's a beautiful church as well. Is and her mum and sister are buried in the graveyard, aren't they? Yes, they are. Um, but uh, yes, the other one I found very overwhelming. It seems like I'm just going constantly sobbing in authors' houses. But, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, Virginia Woolf's house, uh, old oh, sorry, Monk's yes. house in Rodmel. Yes. Um, I went with some friends. In fact, the same friends who went to the Austin house with me. We went to Lewis. We got the train to Lewis and then walked from along the river to to um, Virginia Woolf's house. Uh, and yeah, it's beautifully done. It's National Trust. Um, yeah, lovely. Lots of her furniture and objects and things. Mm-hmm. Uh, the garden's beautiful. You can see her writing hut, and it is just—you feel like they walked out a few minutes before you walked in um, with that one. It's done really well. Yeah, it is, and I want the same living room as them. That mm-hmm. green living room. I was just like, "Wow, this is amazing!" When I walked in, um, and the, the, and obviously. Um, Oh, the name of it's gone completely out of my head. The other house, Charleston. Not Charleston. Um, thank yes, you, yeah. Bell's house. That's wonderful as well. But yes, yes really I, I had good. the same response when I went to Virginia Woolf's house, and I was just like, I can't believe she was in this room. I can't believe these were her chairs. Like, I, it was just, yeah, it kind of gives you goosebumps, I suppose, to feel like I'm in their space. And it, the way that it's been staged, it really is as if you know they've, they've just, um, you know, someone's just knocked on the door and they've gone outside. Um, yeah. You know, like the newspapers had left and everything. It's, I mean, it's, it's wonderful. Um, I think for me, um, I, I can't think. I, I've had one place that was very disappointing that I visited that that really made me feel like, oh, this isn't what I'd imagined. Okay. Um, which is when I went to Dove Cottage in, Com- mm. in the Lake District where Wordsworth lived. And what I found so surprising about it was how the the situation of it was just it wasn't I I'd expected it to be in some stunning location with you know these most amazing views and, and I'd expected it also to be completely by itself. Oh, it's a bit tucked away, isn't it's it? It's very tucked yeah. away, and it's in this little um, kind of terrace of houses with more houses in front of it. And I asked the lady who was, and she said, "Oh yes, no, they were there at the time." So you didn't actually get a view from the cottage of anything really. And it was also so cramped in there. I just felt so claustrophobic. And I thought, this is a horrible place to live. I can't imagine anyone living here. <laughs> and it's I, really low ceilings. Yeah. Really low. In fact, I, at one point, I was just, I started feeling like really panicky. And I, I actually, I got, had to get the, the um, tour guide to let me out early. Cause I was like, I can't actually breathe in here. It's horrible. Um, and I just hated it. And I just thought, Oh, this has really tarnished my, um, mm. imagine my imaginative experience of thinking of Wordsworth, you know, sitting in his study, looking out at this beautiful, you know, in my head, I thought, oh, he could see a lake or something. But no, that wasn't there. But there is another beautiful um, author's house that I think is actually very rarely visited in the Lake District, which is um, John Ruskin's house. Oh, yes, I've been there, yeah. Which is wonderful. And I mean, very sadly, as often happens when you're in the Lake District, the day I visited there, there was so much mist, you couldn't see a thing out the window. <laughs> um, and it, that's a shame because that really is a lakeside house. And it's yes, yeah. stunning. On a beautiful day, it really would be stunning. And I thought, oh, I can see how 
um, you know, he wrote and was inspired here. Um, I'm just trying to think of other places I've been to. I love... In well, I can I just jump in on that one for a go? I was going to say that I, uh, yeah, I went there with my friend Esther Ratter, who wrote uh, This Golden Fleece, all about... Um, wool and, and knitting and stuff which is a very good book uh who was was a tour guide at dove cottage and lived um for a year in the house opposite that you're describing but it was a lovely view from the bedroom i stayed in when i went to see her of dove cottage well, <laughs> how worked, lucky were you it very well that way and she worked there for years as an, um, an education um sort of in charge of education oh, wow. for kids and stuff um and then in fact worked at burns house into two different of burns houses so she Loves an author's house. Welcome to Rabbi Burns' house. Ah. Again, very small, um, and not much stuff of his left. But to be honest, I'm not. I'm not a great fan of Robbie Burns, so I didn't really feel any, um, you know, great thing. But I yeah. mean, uh, there there were many people there who were who were much more affected than I was. I think perhaps you have to be Scottish to feel it. Maybe. Um, I will say uh, one another one I loved for, the, for the where it was Beatrix Potter's house hilltop. <gasps> yes, isn't it wonderful? Really beautiful, and and they... literally it's like the same inside as the pictures. It's incredible from the book. Yes, yeah, and she loved that. You know, she was very into farming methods and all she that was. sort of thing. So, so and it's... the founders of the National Trust was she not? I believe you're right. Yes, yeah. uh, the most disappointing one I've been to was in Florence um, to Dante's house oh, slash like Spanish Steps. Um, oh, I don't know where it's called. What it's called is that or where oh, it was? What did you just say, Venice? No, Florence. Florence. I'm oh, sorry, I'm thinking of Rome. No, um, <laughs> so there's a house that that Dante may have lived in, filled with objects that he may have owned, slash people like him at the time may have owned. As it turns out, it's just an old house. That's cheeky. That, that is. yeah, they're like, well, someone owned this stuff. It could have been him. It's like it clearly wasn't. I don't know why. <laughs> Lying to us. <laughs> Um, not that I've read any Dante, so... No, I mean, you don't feel that bothered. <laughs> um, I have to say, I mean, I've not travelled... Um, you know, I haven't been to many authors' houses abroad, but, I mean, when I was in America... You know, are, you do, are you doing the washing up, by the way? No, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm dishing up my dinner, and I'm going to have to eat because it's late and I've got work tomorrow. So apologies to everyone. You are going to hear me in the kitchen. I do apologise. It's a slice of life. No, this is life. This is what we're doing here. This is, we're just living while we're podcasting. Yeah, sorry um, to interrupt you. Carry on. Sorry. Um, I loved visiting Emily Dickinson's house, which mm. is in Amherst, Massachusetts, which is a college town. That was wonderful. And when I visited, which was many years ago now, because I think I was 20 when I went there. Um, and, you know, I'm turning 35 this year, so I'll leave you to do the maths on that. <laughs> um, and they'd only just acquired the house next door, which was her brother's house. And all of her, you know, her poems and everyone who knows about her biography knows that she lived a very, you know, quiet existence and her main relationship, the only place she would go really would, was, was her brother's house next door. They'd only just acquired that. And it was in, and they allowed us, I think because we were from England, they were a bit <laughs> like, oh, okay, you can go in because, um, you know, you won't be coming back anytime soon sort of thing. Yeah. And, um, I think they also just charmed by the accents. I assumed, um, yeah. And they let us go in and it was like, Everything was untouched, like it had been untouched since the 1880s. It was insane. Wow. Like the wallpaper, the curtains, everything. So that was incredible, but also so was Emily Dickinson's house as well. As, as well. That was really, really interesting to see. And I also um, loved visiting, I'm just trying to think, I think it was Longfellow's house I visited in uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts, where Harvard is. 
But my great sadness, the place I would love to go to and have not um, managed to get to yet is I would really like to go to um, Louisa May Alcott's house. I was wondering if you'd say that, yes, because I really enjoy in The Provincial Lady in America, her description of going there. Yeah. Um, I've not been anywhere close to it. So, yeah. It's always just been a little bit too far out of where I was to to manage it. And like you say, it is difficult in America if you don't have a car. Mm. Trying mm. to get somewhere using public transport. So I've not managed to make it there, but I would love to go because I think that would be really, really, really interesting. But I mean, we are very spoiled, I think, in the UK with so many authors' houses that have been um preserved and taken up by the National Trust. So Rudyard Kipling has got a lovely house. Oh, lovely house, yeah, yeah. In East Sussex. I went there with my parents and my parents there last year. It's quite close to where they live. And um uh, that I've never been, but Thomas Hardy's house is also looked after by the National Trust. Yes, I've been to one of them because they've got two, I think. And I've been to the, like, the one where he was born, but not the one where he lived as an adult. Yeah. It's lovely. Um, and Agatha Christie's, I tried to go oh, to oh, last uh, October, but they cancelled because of high winds. Oh, no, yes, so. I've been there. That is, that is wonderful. Um, and it's the the land outside, like the garden and everything else is amazing. And you can go to the boathouse that's in which of the books is it? Uh, uh, Dead Man's Folly. Dead Man's Folly, yeah. You can go into the boathouse. It's really, really cool. So I do... One day. Um, yeah, I do recommend that if you're going to Devon. But if you are going, you do need to book in advance, even outside of Corona time, because they have, like... It's an incredibly steep one-way road up there, and they need to know who's coming in and out. It's, it's a hairy drive, and I'm not scared oh, of driving gosh, okay. in any way before, <laughs> but I was a bit like, whoa. <laughs> I am scared of driving, so it's... Yeah. Uh, have you ever, um, and I have, been to authors' houses that aren't open to the public, just gone to find them? Oh. Oh, what, like just stood outside, you mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, well, I've been, I I went to pay homage to um, the the house where Virginia Woolf and Leonard Woolf lived in Richmond, which I was very depressed to find is just a solicitor's. Ah, uh, yes. Um, sorry, I am now eating. Um, <laughs> let me think. So I- no, you take over while I'm munching. Yeah. <laughs> what are you eating? I've got um, a veggie burger, Lovely. some homemade chips, and some gherkins. I'm, I'm having a very sort of scratch <laughs> supper. <laughs> some gherkins. Um, <laughs> yeah, there's a couple. Uh, a. a. Milne's house um, is not open to the public, but it what used to be a farm. And for those who aren't familiar with OS maps in the UK all past and present farms are marked on them so i was able to find it based on that and there's a picture of it in his biography so i knew i got there simon it's like it. literally sleuthing i know it's some good detective work i ran down the driveway and took a photo um, well done a photo that i have on my mantelpiece in fact i had it at uni and people asked me if i was from there and i was glad that i gave the impression that i could come from that sort of wealth but i certainly did not um it's a beautiful beautiful house uh ian e. delafield's house i found oh um, Devon. In Devon, in Clumpton. I tried to find that um, because my brother-in-law is from Clumpton and I asked him about it and his usual answer is, play cricket there. Um, <laughs> but he couldn't tell me where the he, we couldn't find the house. So It is quite a long way out of the village, sort of stuck out on its own. Um, again, I ran down the driveway and as I was running back, saw that someone was standing in their garage, but I was long gone by them. Um, and... Barbara Cummins' house. Mm. She is she. Her house was in Bidford and Avon in Warwickshire. And uh, one of my very dear friends, Lorna, uh, who was on the podcast, uh, of course, to, when we talked about political books, um, is from Bidford and Avon. So when I've been to visit her family, I thought, let's go and find 
Bell Court, where Bell Crimmins lived. Oh. So um, I do get, I do find it's obviously you have less time <laughs> to enjoy it if you are running down the driveway and then running away again. Yeah. Uh, if I were a mature person, um, I might n- knock and ask if they w- would let me take a photo or indeed show me around. But um, as it is, I've just gone for light trespassing. I always wonder the people who live in authors' houses or like famous people's houses whether that's one of the reasons why they bought the house and whether they wouldn't mind. Like, say, for example, someone, you know, I don't know, Virginia Woolf lived in my flat. I'd be thrilled if yeah. someone who loved Virginia Woolf knocked to my door and was like, hey, can I come in? I'd be like, sure, let's talk about Virginia Woolf together. But if someone bought this flat, he was not literally at all. They'd probably be really annoyed. But I'd be like, why would you buy Virginia Woolf's flat if you didn't care? Like, what? what do you know yeah, I mean, particularly, I mean, if if... Yeah, if they, if you know it's their house when you're buying it, I feel like it comes as part of it. You can't then get all upset if people want to come look at it, no. I think. Uh, interestingly, with A. Milne's house, Brian Jones from the Rolling Stones lived there after him, so they get yeah. quite varied types of fans turning up. To, yes. <laughs> um, no, to investigate. Um, well, gosh, we should probably move on, because we uh, talked quite a while, but... Uh, if, thank you, Gillian. Great topic. And yes, I I certainly do care where authors lived, as you might have been able to tell by the number of examples we yeah, I was able to as, give. As do I. There we well, go. It's a wonderful experience, isn't it? Yes. Thank you, Gillian. Lovely. Um, and we do have a topic for the middle section um, from Sydney. Thank you, Sydney, um, who emailed in after our Marilyn Robinson episode, because one of the things we talked about was how uh, it's relatively seldom that you find a, a good novel about faith, particularly recently. Mm. Um, and she wants to know if we can think of other examples of people who write well about faith. Hmm. Which uh, I, I can start with if you like. Yeah, you go. I'm just trying to think. Go ahead. Well, it's one of the interesting things. My friend um, uh, Julie was, not Julie, uh, Jane was saying to me the other day that. Um, when she's reading novels from the 30s, 20s, 40s sort of period, uh, she everyone always talks about God and she just skims past that because she doesn't believe in God. Whereas the reverse is definitely true, and I didn't know when it flipped, but now the reverse is definitely true in that it's... Uh, what am I saying? Authors who are writing in the 30s, generally their char- would assume that their characters believed in God as a default, and generally that people assume that characters don't believe in God as a default now, and who knows when that flipped. So that's one of the things I found so refreshing about Marilyn Robinson. Um, but in terms of novels, I could only, I couldn't come up with that many. I do remember in They Knew Mr. Knight by Dorothy Whipple. Yeah, I was um, about to say that. She's the most yeah. referential to God I've read. Yeah, and genuine um, experiences of her faith influencing her life and not just being something in the background. Um, and then As For Me and My House by Sinclair Lewis. Sinclair Lewis, Upton Sinclair, Sinclair Ross, Sinclair Ross, <laughs> one, of, one of the, one of them. It's got Sinclair in his name somewhere. I think it was Sinclair. I'll put it in the notes. Um, it's about a minister and his wife, and it's the most miserable book I've ever read. I do. Uh, but not really because of faith, although that doesn't go super well, but just because of how dusty and miserable the place they live is, and they hate it, and it's just a really, I found a really unpleasant experience reading it, but, but it does take faith seriously. Um, and then going back a bit, The Vicar of Wakefield by Oliver Goldsmith, I think is um, really good on for many reasons, but um, very a very practical understanding of theology 
a not just something abstract, but something that actually influences how people live. So I enjoyed that for that reason. Any thoughts? Yeah, I'm trying to think. I mean, Dorothy Whipple was the one I was going to go for there. Um, I mean, I can't think of anything where it's it's not just a sort of passing reference, that it's sort of a given that God's in the background, which, you know, mm. earlier novels, like you say. I don't think I've come across anything recent that there's, that's fictional, apart from Marilyn Robinson, and she is a real rarity, I think. That's why, it's, mm-hmm. you know, her books are so... Um, you know, precious because they offer something that, and also like religion that's accessible to people who don't believe either. Mm. Um, but no, I mean, I can't think of any actually. Oh, bad, isn't it? Well, yeah, there we go. Um, if, if you can think of any, <laughs> do let us know. Mm. Um, I'd certainly be intrigued to read some more, and I'd be intrigued to read uh, modern novels about faith that are not Christian faith as well. Uh, I, so, any recommendations there? Yeah, I mean, I, I would particularly welcome, yeah, reading books about other religions. Um, I'm always open to understanding other people's experiences, but yeah, I can't think of any. Oh, yeah. oh good gosh, question. What, are, what are you doing? <laughs> Sorry, I'm just playing my nose. Sorry, honestly. <laughs> I live my life here, Simon. <laughs> Um, thank you, Sydney. Thank you. That's what I mean about the bullying, by the way. <laughs> it's low-level aggression, microaggressions yeah. all the time. All typical the time. man. Patriarchy in action, guys. It's very seldom that I'm referred to as a typical man, so I will <laughs> <laughs> take it. Hey, lads, yeah. <laughs> um, and on to the final topic. Like most typical men, I've spent my time recently reading about girls' Catholic schools. <laughs> so... <laughs> Uh, Frost in May by Antonia White and Dusty Answer by Rosamund Lehman. Um, since I have just read Frost in May, shall I introduce that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I must so, confess, it's been several years. Yes, yeah, so this episode is going to be one where we both know one of the books quite well and are sort of flailing a bit for the other one. Yeah. But luckily, we know one book each. So it is kind us. of as fair, to be honest. So. Yeah, fair. Um, Frost in May, oh, it's set in 1908. I hadn't realised that until I read the blurb just now. Um, where Nanda, short for Fernanda, is um, a young girl. She's, I think, nine when it starts. Uh, her f- father is a recent Catholic convert and wants her to experience or to immerse herself more in Catholic life and so sends her off to a convent school, the Five Wounds, as it's called. Um, and she she has studied for a, a few years beforehand with her father, so she she's not completely new to Catholicism. But some of it um, is still a bit of a surprise to her. And yeah, the novel basically follows f- about five years whilst she and various other girls live the um, quite strict life of, of schoolgirls in a convent, surrounded by, by nuns and trying to learn um, learn to be good, I guess. It seems the, the, the hallmark of it. Um, could you talk us through Dusty Answer, please? Yeah, when I finish my mouthful, you can edit this bit out. <laughs> That's me finished now. I've eaten my dinner. Um, well, I hope it was lovely. I do apologise, but I was short on time this evening. So, Dusty Answer. I think I'm right in saying it was Layman's first novel. It is, yes. Um, written in the 1920s. I don't know which exact year. And uh, it's about Judith, who um, grows up as his only child, and she lives next door to uh, a large house where 
it's owned by the grandmother of these several cousins who come and visit every summer. And Judith has this kind of hero worship of these cousins who are slightly older than her. And the first part of the book deals with her sort of childhood memories. And um, when and then the second part of the book is when she's at university. And then the last part of the book is when she reconnects with the cousins as adults. Um, so it's it's very much a, a bildungsroman. Um, but, you know, quite an interesting one in terms of looking at how, you know, I suppose childhood's passions and things can stay with you and that kind of learning to to move past and to understand the people that you thought as as a child were like a certain way actually as an adult you realize oh they're, they're completely different to my perception and whatever um it's yeah so it's uh one of those sorts of 1920s books where literally nothing happens but it's <laughs> um it's very evocative of a of a time and place yes yeah um, and so I, I read it in 2012, apparently, according to my blog. Mm. Um, and I was just rereading my review and I don't remember loving it as much as I apparently did. So, I know, but I was surprised because, um, I mean, I read your review and I was like, blimey, he loved this book. I mean, I, I wish I'd felt the same way, but. Yeah. Um, cause I don't remember that much about it, if I'm honest, but, um, as I read the review, parts of it did come back to me. And, um, yeah, I, I don't often like reading about, children particularly yeah, I, I find adults more interesting in novels but i really loved the opening section to that novel and liked the stuff at college rather less i think partly because um a lot of the stuff at college is about them being um you know obsessed with beauty and aesthetics and all these sorts of uh bold statements about life that people make at that age whereas the the earlier and later sections felt more real to me and more interesting perhaps mm. i don't know i don't know if you because i know you, you weren't loving the novel as you started no i mean i got to kind of halfway through and i was just like i'm i'm bored essentially the first part of it is all very beautifully written and evocative and you know it's like the the cousins have just come back and after a long absence and so this is is triggering all of these past memories and you're sort of flitting between the past and the present and everyone's very enigmatic and you know she's in love with the with you know one of the cousins and then maybe she's in love with another one and is one of them in love with her and you know because obviously if you live next door to someone then you'll all fall in love with each other um, <laughs> and I, I was just a bit like I don't know where this is going and then she goes to university and I just found the relation. She has this friendship, this very intense friendship. Mm. And it felt like, I was like, are you saying that this was a romantic relationship or aren't you? Because it was never kind of clear. It was one of those very intense, almost 19th century female friendships that seemed to be a little bit more. Like Jennifer certainly seemed to me to be a, to be a lesbian because then she took up with this other girl. But I wasn't ever sure if, I was like, I, I, it was all a bit oblique. I wasn't entirely sure what exactly was going on. But it was... Both of their behaviour was so repellent. I was just a bit like, oh, you know, I'm. I'd actually far rather learn about what it was like to be a pioneering female graduate rather than you mooning about university, wondering what Jennifer's up to. Who's <laughs> so yes, just seems yeah, like a really un unpleasant, unpleasant yeah. person. Yeah. yeah, like really horrible person. Um, and then the last part of the book where she has her sort of, you know, awakening, I suppose, was more interesting to me. But I. I, I love the writing. Absolutely love the writing. Stunning I think she's writing. An incredible yeah. writer. 
But I just thought, what's the point of this book when I got to the end? That's how I felt. That's interesting because that's sort of how I feel about Frost in May. Mm. Um, I do think the right. I think the writing is better in Rosamund Lehman's. It's more sort of deliberately um, beautiful, I guess. The writing in Frost in May is more um, just serviceable and does that well. But uh, it's there's not really any sort of momentum in the plot. I enjoyed reading it a lot, um, but I got to the end and thought I didn't really know what the point of that was, and. Um, I guess it's an interesting insight into life in a convent. I've, I feel yeah. well, sort of familiar with that territory from because E.M. Delafield wrote so many novels that had at least sections where the the um, heroine was a student at a convent, as indeed E.M. Delafield was herself, uh, and has um, obviously had a fairly unpleasant experience of it. Whereas this one, um, you do feel sorry a lot. There's the I think I've read about it maybe in, in Nicola Bowman's A Very Great Profession. I think she wrote about it there. So I was familiar with some of it. And there's all the rules about how you can't have uh, individual friends. You know, one, of the, one of the terrible things to do is, is go around in twos. Um, you can't have any sort of self-love, I guess. So they yeah. get very... Anyone who's got any sort of um, sense of self-achievement or... Uh, vanity or anything like that is is ruthlessly stamped out, and yet it's not it's not a, a misery memoir. I mean, it's not a memoir, but it's not it's not portrayed as an ent- entirely miserable time, uh, which was quite refreshing because it so often seems that nuns have hated as ogres in these situations, whereas people in this novel had genuine faith, had genuine genuinely wanted the best for these girls and thought they were doing that. Um, it sounds like it probably wasn't a great time for girls of that generation experiencing that sort of thing by any means, but um, but it's done in it's written in a fairly even-handed way, uh, I suppose. But yeah, there's, there's nothing really happens. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> so, and I don't mind novels where nothing really happens, but maybe I'm just not interested when nothing happens to children rather than nothing happens to adults. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, I, I found, remember, find it, it was years ago I read it, but I, it did have a very profound effect on me. And I thought it's exploration of faith. And um, for, for me, I felt more of, of wanting to believe in something rather than actually believing in something. It was really interesting. And I I also just remember being, I found it really interesting, as you, as you say, that kind of even-handed way of looking at how, really what was incredible cruelty but cruelty that was inflicted and it sounds bizarre to say it but from a place of love of of what they perceived they were doing the right thing even though from an outsider's perspective reading it you're like this is child cruelty you can't do this um and it's it's really interesting thinking about the kind of it explores that the kind of i suppose the moral dubiousness of the whole enterprise, really, um, and the difficulties in, I suppose, deciding whether something, doing, putting girls in that position and putting them in that environment and treating them like that is ever the right thing to do. I think one of the interesting things, particularly compared to what we talked about earlier, is that there's a lot about religion and not very much about faith in this mm. novel, in that people talk a lot about the rules, yeah. about... Um, making sure you're doing the right things. Is, I, I can't really remember people talking about relationship with God in this or with Jesus. No, or, they don't. Or, and and I, yeah. yeah, that's what I, I found, I think, the most disturbing about it was the lack of love in the book 
And, mm. you know, we're doing this because it's what's right for you and you need to learn to do this. You need to learn to do that. But there was never any real feeling of like, but why? You know, what's, what's driving you behind? You know, what's, what's driving this? There was no, it was just like this coldness and austereness and that decision to like not let them make any friends. I just thought it was, yeah, I thought it was quite horrific, but at the same time, you could see like we're, we're doing this because we we think this is the right thing to do because we're following these rules and this is what this tells us to do and all the rest of it and there was no ability for I felt humanity or exceptionalism to think for this this person yeah, yeah. this isn't working and we need to do this for them instead kind of thing. And I think I liked that it was even-handed, but it did mean that the, that um, there wasn't that much of a narrative voice. I think whereas Dusty answer. Although, as you say, nothing wildly significant happens, Rosamund Lehman's writing is so stunning that she can make quite, well, at least I found, she she can make quite ordinary things beautiful. The only other thing I've read by her is um, Invitation to the Waltz that we did an episode oh, yeah. on, which, again, stunningly beautiful. Um, and that's only just over the course of a day, isn't it? That yeah. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. what. Do you remember what you thought of Atonia Wright's writing or approach? I think I very much enjoyed her writing and I did go on to read the others in the trilogy, um, which were all very good. Um, And I think they get better as as you go on, as she kind of exits from that environment. Quadrology, in fact. Oh, right, okay. Mm -hmm. Um, But but you do see very much in, in the rest of those novels that emotional impact of... The, her time in the convent and obviously she she goes on to lose her faith and you can see why really because as as you know we've both said there isn't it's not really about faith being in that convent it's about following the rules that's how it's depicted mm-hmm. and you know that's ultimately never going to lead you to anywhere about finding something you know wanting to find any meaning in it or wanting to continue with that life but i do think you know, for me reading it, it was it was just a really I found I found it quite heartbreaking at times. Um and that desire to sort of want to follow and want to belong and to want to do the right thing in her. But also at the same time knowing that, that she didn't quite fit it didn't fit her. That loneliness. Um I just thought thought it was, you know, you know, so well depicted. I do think she she gets into that sort of teenager's mindset very well which i do think is very hard for adult writers to do yeah i will say one thing i did one moment i really liked and it was a it was a brilliant segue where a scene ends because this girl is being sent to the sanatorium um a girl we're not particularly haven't heard that much about before and then she says, oh, you got to clear a bed for Teresa. And then the next, the sort of row of stars, and the next one says, two years after Teresa died, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> well, that's very clever. Mm. But we've, <laughs> um, so yeah, there, was, there were a few jumps around. Um, I found the ending, which I won't say what it was, but it comes on very quickly. I guess there are those other books, so it's not really an ending. But yeah. the next book in the series was written almost 20 years later, so I don't know if if she'd intended there to be more. I assume not. Yeah, I didn't just, feel like, you know, normally when there's a, a book that's in a series, you kind of feel like you're being set up for the next one. I, yeah. didn't, I didn't feel that way at the end. No, if anything, I felt that she was quickly ramming an ending on it, thinking, oh, she yeah. needs to get out of the convent somehow. So <laughs> this, this will do, do as well as any. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think both of these books are quite autobiographical. Yes. Um, 
but yes, I don't, I'm sure not completely. No. Um, but yeah, I, I think in terms of autobiography, I mean, I would imagine Dusty Answer is a bit looser, but I don't know because there's so many odd things that go on in it in terms of relationships and things. Yeah, I mean, mm. I, I know that she herself wasn't particularly happy with it later on in life. Um, and I did remember when I was reading it, I was like, God, this, you know, this would never get published today. Isn't it? Does it, I mean, it tells that her brother was John Lehman, a publisher. <laughs> you know, like. Did he, did he publish it? I don't think he or... published it, but I, I, I feel like, you know, connections were involved because it's certainly not her best work. I read his memoir called, um, Thrown to the Wolves yeah. about working with them. And he's very, very bitter about Leonard Wolf. Oh, I see. Thrown to the wolves, very good. Yes, for wolves, yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, whatever. I, I haven't. I don't think I've read this, but uh, Ian Delafield wrote a book of satires uh, or spoofs, and ha- included one called Still Dustier. So <laughs> <laughs> maybe now it's fresh in your mind. You should go and sit, so yeah, hunt that, that out. Funny. Yeah. Wow. Um, I was also reminded when I was reading Frost and May of Olivia by Olivia. Oh yeah, I have. Yeah. Um, the pen name of something Strachey, Deborah Strachey, one of Listen Strachey's sisters. Couldn't tell you. I think that's right. Um, which again, I didn't particularly enjoy. Maybe I'm just not into girls' school stories. Well, I mean, never having been a girl at school, I can imagine that they'd be so cool <laughs> I mean, to I, you. I was obsessed with St. Clair's at one point, but. And I was a Mallory Towers girl, so. Everyone seems to have been, but you know, which one had twins? Riddle me that. Yeah, well, actually, do you know what? I feel like there were twins in Mallory Towers. Probably were. They usually, she usually had at least one set of twins banging about somewhere. She was just recycling. <laughs> I won't have it. Everything Nina Blyton did was <laughs> original and mm-hmm. new. Um, okay, which of the two would you pick? I think I would go for Frost in May, even though I think Dusty Answer, the writing is much better. I do think for me, I found the story and the dilemmas beneath the surface of Frost in May much more compelling and absorbing. And I'm going to trust 2012 Simon and the review he wrote and say that I really love Dusty Answer. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> even if that apparently has not stayed in my mind completely, I am going to pick Dusty Answer. And it's interesting, we've both picked the book that we don't remember that well, mm. as opposed to the one we just read. Interesting. What does that say about us or them? Who knows? Something interesting, I'm sure. No, doubtless. Uh, In the next episode, we will be discussing Half Crown House by Helen Ashton that you might have heard uh, Rachel say talk about in the beginning of uh, the last episode. Um, And The Foolish Gentleman, Woman by Marjorie Sharp, which I believe Rachel also spoke about (laughs) in that part of the episode. So if you really enjoyed the beginning of the last episode, you'll love the next episode. Whatever that is, you can find a list of all the books and authors mentioned in this episode at stuckinabook.com. You can find Rachel at books.webbrest.com. And uh, if, like Gillian and Sydney, you've got thoughts for topics or questions, uh, do please send them into tea or books at gmail.com. Yes, We'd love to hear do. from you. Yeah. Save um, me from Simon's topics. Yeah, someone should. Otherwise, <laughs> I mean, there's always the threat of birds versus horses. Ah! <laughs> I see there's loads of horses in Brat for Stop it. Anyway. Um, <laughs> see you next time, guys. Bye. Bye.